Welcome back to Winning with Connections, the WWC podcast. Uh, today, we are really excited to have Rosemary Williams, who has been, uh, frankly, a, a friend to our firm, uh, WWC Global, as well as a mentor to me and to Donna Honeycutt uh, for, I don't even want to say how many years. But uh, Ro has been, I, I'm not even going to try to do her career justice, but we're going to talk a little bit today about her role uh, as a former political appointee in particular and explore a couple of different avenues around the political process, um, given that there is uh, a, a transition going on right now. Ro, can you uh, can you give us a little bit of background on where you came from, um, what, what your career has looked like? Because it's been an, a pretty incredible career to now. Oh, my gosh. And thank you so much, Lauren, for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. I've been so looking forward to this. Uh, I started in broadcast journalism when I was 19 years old, which is a very long time ago. It was because I was really drawn to storytelling and telling the truth. I hated bullies and I thought journalism was where I needed to go. Uh, also, I had trouble getting through college. I had trouble getting through high school. There are a lot of parents out there who are going to start nodding their heads when I tell them, when I tell your your audience I had an undiagnosed learning disability, so I had trouble with school, but I was testing off the map. So my parents, and this is, you know, before we knew what ADD was, they just couldn't figure out why I was flunking out of high school and almost held back several times when all my aptitude tests were, you know, in the top five, 10 percentile. Well, now we know a little bit more about that. So when I get to know journalism, I thought, gosh, this kind of pace and this is for me. And as it turns out, broadcast journalism is the number one occupation for people with adult ADD. Who knew? Really? I yeah. need to tell yeah. that to the kids because oh, we're struggling with that, too. So, oh my, yeah. And so, yeah, I got in there and I thought, this is where I need to be. And as it turned out, the quick pace, the sudden changes was perfect uh, for me. And then 24 hour news came along and I thought, what kind of what kind of idiot would go working for 24 hour news? I mean, that's just so complicated and hard. And as soon as they asked, I raised my hand. It was almost involuntary. It was like a gravitational pull. Of course. So I ended up, I was the third uh, six. I was a six person hired for MSNBC. I was in charge of Washington. Uh, they were pretty heady days. You know, how do you do 24 hour news with a news dinosaur like NBC? And I really hit my sweet spot. And what it taught me was, the difference between power and influence. Mm -hmm. um, I learned that the only way I was going to get anything done was through influence because I had almost no power in the face of people like Andrea Mitchell and Tim Russert and, you know, these icons. Uh, but I needed people to basically double their workload by helping me out uh, and get on MSNBC uh, without any additional compensation <laughs> and easy day. Right. And as it turned out, it turned, um, and I think you're small. All business folks will get this right away. It taught me that the folks who see uh, saw news as a as a public service of contributing to something larger than themselves, of solving problems, they were easy, easy sell. And that led to 9-11. I was the executive producer of MSNBC covering Washington and politics. And after 9-11, like everybody else, I had to stop and think about my life. And and uh, I was single, which was, you know, it was fine. But I and I just lost my dad. We were very close. And you're a daddy's girl, so you get that right away, Lauren. Yeah. And he was my best bud. And um, I just, it felt like time to get off the crazy train. So I I quit, which 
completely confounded everyone, myself included. I actually don't know where the voice came from. I said, what would happen if I, you know, they wanted to promote me and move to New York and be a vice president in charge of nothing, which is what they do right. in many businesses uh, with women. And I said, yeah, what would happen if I just left? All right. So I leave. And before there was a home and garden channel, before there was, before everybody was doing it, I got into renovating and flipping houses because uh, my dad was in real estate. It made, it made me close to him again. You know, I just, it was not a couple of months before, since he had died and he was always schooling me on how to buy property. And so I did about 12 houses, which was a blast. And about four months into it, I'm living in Annapolis. There's a knock on the door and there's a Marine standing there who I knew who was fixing up his boat all day. And with him was a second Marine. And I said, Oh, I took one look at him. I said, Oh, <laughs> please come in. <laughs> well, that, that second Marine and I uh, were married 18 months later. And so John's last deployment was my first. And I was, you know, good to go. Right. I fix up houses. I knew where the water main was. I can fix anything. I was full of the red, white, and blue. And off he went. And I was lost. Here I was at my most capable. Right. And I was lost. Right. And because he he individually augmented with out of um, Lejeune in North Carolina. I didn't have the community. The emails I was getting was about holiday you know, Halloween parties. We didn't have kids. I just I just needed information. And of course, you've been through this, Lauren. They call home. He wants to just chit chat about nothing. And I need to know how he is. And the last thing he needs to talk about is how he is. Right. Right. <laughs> so, you know, feeling that feeling, I said, what are women, mostly women, but what are spouses, military spouses, half my age? Because at this point, I'm about 45, half my age. How are they coping? Right. You know, hundreds of miles from home, kids, unemployed. If I'm lost, holy cow. Right. So I got involved with a nonprofit and uh, on military families, because I said, whatever this thing is, I got to help fix it. And then right after uh, President Obama got into office, there was a phone call to Blue Star Families where I was working or volunteering, I should say. No one got paid back in those days. <laughs> and uh, they said, would you uh, like to interview for they're looking for uh, resumes? And uh, they put mine forward and they called and said, you know, how'd you like to interview for the director of military families at national security? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> of course I would. And, um, you know, I went to the White House for the interview. And, you know, for the folks who were listening, the first four or five hundred times to go to the White House, it's a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> After that, you're like, whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I should say it, it's still a thrill. But at that time, I it didn't impact my interview, If that is what I'm trying to say. is like I was focused on the interview and nervous about that. But the building wasn't having the additional Im negative impact. And they selected me. And, and this is for folks who want to be a, uh, and we can talk about that. We'll talk about this, who want to be a political appointee. It's a messy business and I can go, we can go into detail with that. But for me, they said, great, you're, you're our selection. I said, terrific. What's the next steps? And they said, well, you have to meet the national security advisor. I said, General Jones, former Marine. I'm a Marine spouse. I have his coin. How hard is this going to be? I got it nailed. They said, great. He's on leave. For two weeks, I said, well, this job will be gone. I said, what do you mean? I said, are you kidding? I, in the world of business, you steal quickly. Steal being a right. term of art, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> right. And Lauren, you and you and Donna have practically invented this concept of get in, get smart, 
take it, run with it, be successful. And so um, they said, no, no, that's silly. So sure enough, the job evaporated. They didn't pick somebody else. It just evaporated. They didn't have funds, et cetera, et cetera. They didn't act quickly and that's okay. And I was sort of bitter. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But during the the interview process, they said, uh, someone called me and said, you know what? Um, We're looking for somebody with communications expertise to go to VA. I said, VA, I I guess. I don't know anything about VA. And then I thought about it. Well, I'm married to a veteran. My dad was a veteran. Mm-hmm. My dad got his health care at VA. He had um, Parkinson's and a brain tumor, and they operated on him, and we were supposed to have him for six weeks. We had him for 18 more months. Um, I said, well, I, yeah, I'll, I'll interview. And it was great. And it was under the great Secretary Shinseki, who is, you know, just iconic and brilliant and quiet. You know, all these things I wasn't and not. <laughs> <laughs> I learned a ton. Right. Uh, and, and then um, I got three more appointments. And when I got out, I did some freelancing. I served on some boards. I started a nonprofit. I helped another profit out of a, out of a hole. And then I felt like I had one more job left in me. So I uh, interviewed around and it was Deloitte uh, that really captured my heart and my mind. They were just starting to understand the value proposition of helping military spouses and military families. And they were genuine about it. And I was really intrigued by the conversation. And then I had to speak to the, I didn't have to, I was invited to speak to the military spouse of the year, a luncheon, which you have gone to and you've sponsored uh, you and your company, which has been great. And this is the first time I spoke to the group where I wasn't a political appointee. Yeah. And so I gave them, you know, full metal rosemary. I mean, it was, it, nothing was off the table and it was great and they loved it. Well, I about died because two executives from Deloitte were in the audience. <laughs> oh, God. And I've seen Full Metal Rosemary. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I think, oh, they're going to hire me now. But anyway, they love the authenticity of it, I'll say. So um, I've been there about a year and a half, and I work uh, on military, family, and veterans accounts and all the different accounts that touch it. I'm known as a specialist executive, which is a swanky way of saying you served at certain levels in the government and or in, in an industry and uh, we need your expertise. Mm-hmm. So I direct support the head of VH, v, VA Health, Dr. Rich Stone, uh, combat doc, just a genius and heartfelt and amazing leader. I also support the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, Mark Milley, who again, genius leader yeah uh, oh god just you know heart driven leader and i couldn't i couldn't be happier so that's my long and sorted story you're kind to ask it's a little bit like you know what was it like when you threw the touchdown pass for old miss or fighting in the boer war but i hope everybody's still awake that's my story yeah, that was awesome and i you know it's funny i don't think i've ever heard the full story and i've i've known you since you were when you were military uh, community and family policy for however long that was after Rob was, I think, the first time I met you. But that's going back probably seven years now. And and we've been lucky to to kind of be around you and have, I think, one of the, the, the times that I remember the most was the day we got the uh, contract award, the big contract award that we got. And I realized I woke up at I don't even think I slept, but I got up at about two o'clock in the morning and started whiteboarding. And one of the things I realized is we have to write a press release and I have no idea how to write a press release. And I think I waited until about seven to be a little bit, you know, responsible. But I called you and said, Ro, how do I write a press release? So, you know, you've been you've been around us for for 
more time than I can count. And I, I have always appreciated your wise counsel and your energy and your full metal row, as, <laughs> as you said, because because it is the 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 authenticity that you lead with um, has always been really important to us and to me in particular. So let's talk a little bit about first and foremost, since this is a podcast around small businesses that are trying to break into or trying to work with the government mm-hmm. as a political appointee, you got to see us come and pitch to you. Um, and that, you know, first time that I met you, Hey, we'd like to come work with you, with you here, but you, I'm sure got to see all sorts of small businesses looking to break into the government as a political appointee. How, first of all, how much power do you have in all of that? Uh, I think, you were surprised early on to, to find how how little power you had in some of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so really good question, Lauren. I think um, for the small business owners, I think um, I will say that it is often harder to get an audience with a political appointee because the bigger companies have uh, more people who have more relationships. It's almost like a numbers game, you know. Frankly speaking, I wouldn't spend too much time pursuing time with a political appointee, and I'll tell you why. If they have their act together, and most of them do, if not all of them, they are reluctant to meet with contractors. You can get yourself in a pickle. Yep. Um, I ended up terminating, asking my team to terminate an unperforming contract. They were supposed to do something. Utilization was going down, not up. So I, at the first window, I told them to stop it. And they've been largely unhappy with me ever since, and that was six years ago. Yeah. (laughs) So um, generally speaking, political appointees are reluctant to talk to companies, but they do want to see sort of the white papers. They do want to see the innovations. They do want to see things that they can accomplish so they can go to the White House and say, here's an idea that we hadn't thought of. And of course, along the way, if they're if they're good about it, and again, most are, they're bringing along their career employees along with this this innovative, these innovative ideas. And they don't have to be big ones. You know, they don't have to be a complete overhaul of something. It could be gathering data to better understand the impact of a program. There's a lot that uh, can be presented. You don't need a big window. A lot of uh, political appointees will also, it's getting to it to them, which is a hassle. And you can generally find a front office phone number and you can generally discern an email. Uh, they go to events. You can corner them an event. Mm-hmm. But it's really it's getting an idea under their nose. And and honestly, the one of the least effective ways of doing it is, hey, we'd love to get on your calendar. Well, yeah, you and the rest of the world. So. Right. Right. So it's more of a I have this concept to do X, Y, Z. I'm going to put it on paper. Where should I send it? And then exactly. how do I follow up? Uh, and that's really being dogged is the right way. If you are in the business, if you are in a small business, you know, it really is about. Relation, well, all success is through relationships. Let's just establish that here right now. But it's the relationship with your core. It's the relationship with the KO. It's the relationship with the program manager. Um, these are folks. These are your gates. These are the oh, these are the folks that can open doors and say, "I will take this white paper and I will put it in front of the right people." Right. So I think as a political appointee, it and also very few political appointees are willing to move money around. Mm-hmm. So generally, it's a team effort. It's the relationships you have. And it's uh, those influencers around 
the dasty who has, excuse me, around the political appointee who has the power. So the political appointee has the power and all those people around them that have the influence, right? So pushing those, le- pushing those buttons and moving those levers around influence to get in front of a political appointee. But just remember, everybody feels the heat. Like on January 21st, there's going to be a starting gun that goes off. Right now it's a race to a hundred days. What have you done? What have you done? So there really, there is a sort of a gravitational pull for ideas. Don't be surprised. Other people are thinking of the same ideas though. You just have to stay resilient. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I mean, that you, you raise a good point here. There is a transition obviously happening now and there, there will be a transition and that first hundred days, you're right. I I did not realize until I got to Washington. I didn't understand the concept of the first hundred days because what is it like? What's the difference? What does it matter if it's a hundred days or 120 days? But every that is a metric that everyone really thinks about and really judges you on, and everyone is looking at that first hundred days. So, so that is something you know everyone needs to be focused on not just from the political perspective, but, you know, the career staff are, are, are also trying to prove themselves to their new political appointees, um, you know, to the extent that there, there is one in there. And obviously sometimes there that's faster than, than other times. Let me, let me add one more thing to that. Sorry for interrupting, but I'm getting old. And that is, you know, if you're deeply interested in reaching out to a political appointee, Look on their LinkedIn profile, find out what they're passionate about. Generally speaking, everybody who is coming into um, the government has a passion project or they're an expert on something or they have experience in something that drives that is driving them being there and get to know that and connect with that because we're all the same. Right. It's human nature. We will respond to things that which we hold close to our heart. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, And, you know. Political appointees, it sounds ridiculous, but political appointees are people, too. Uh, <laughs> right. and, and sometimes, I don't know, when I first was working in D.C. as a, a you know junior White House staffer, I don't think I saw them as as human beings. I think I, I saw them as as these untouchable gods, frankly. But they aren't. They are truly people and people with their own needs and their own career path and their own requirements to to meet. So it really does matter to touch them as individuals and as people. But they aren't the ones that are, as much as they are the ones making the policy level decisions, clearly. Uh, One of the things I think I learned probably after I talked to you, because I think we were pitching to you, um, hey, you should should hire us for for the support contract there. You, as much as you might have wanted us versus some other firm that wasn't run by military spouses to do the military spouse work, that wasn't your, that wasn't your decision. That wasn't your job. And in, in fact, it would have been really inappropriate for yeah. you to get involved in it. Yeah. And that was especially heartbreaking because it was you, you and your team were perfect for a very real problem that needed right. to be solved. And right. it was, it just, once I let go of it and said, okay, I really would like this to happen. It, it suddenly, it, you know, for all these re- other reasons, it didn't work. Right. And I wonder if we would have had a different outcome if it was the core's idea or if it was the program manager's idea. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I felt like although the program manager was fully on board, but it's just a great I think that's a really good example of it didn't matter what I wanted. Right. Frankly. Right. And so, you know, it using your using your time and your talents on on business development to the right end, uh, you know, we we stopped trying with the political appointees. Now, 
knowing the political appointees has certainly helped us over the years in understanding what the hot buttons are, right? In understanding what struggles they have and what priorities they have so that we can talk to the career staff about why we can solve the problems that that they're getting driven to solve by that. Exactly. Exactly right. And in every and you can go on the Biden Harris website and in in every single category on the face of the American continental states and beyond what they're going to tackle. Right. And then if you align your capabilities to some of these requirements, you know, you're about 60 percent ahead of the game. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's going to be critical. It's critical in the Biden administration. It was critical in the Trump administration. It was critical in the Obama administration. And I mean, I I hesitate to say I've been doing this way too long uh, (laughs) and and have done it through, uh, gosh, from the Bush two administration onward at this point. So it has been true in every administration that we've worked with and, and will continue to be true in every administration going forward. So one of the things, because I've I've tapped into you for this as people, you know, we we did Homefront Rising starting, gosh, six, seven years ago now. We started Homefront Rising and, and have been doing it for a while. And you've you've been involved in it pretty much every every year that we've done anything. But we we talk on a bipartisan level about getting involved in politics. One of the things that everyone asks me for, and usually I send them over to you because you're a whole lot smarter in it than I am, is how do I get a political appointment? And obviously with the changeover in administration, we're going to have that happen both for Democrats, right, who want to get into the administration, uh, the, the new Biden administration, but also for those who are coming out of the Trump administration or the majority on the Hill who are looking to figure out how to land somewhere. So you've both been involved in getting into a political appointment. I know you're involved in helping people. Um, and obviously you're a Democrat having been in the, in the Biden or in the Obama administration and then having worked, I know, uh, some on the, on the campaign. So I know you've been, you've been involved in that case, but you've also been involved in transitioning out of an administration and figuring out where to land. So that's a whole lot to unpackage. It's a it's a really big question, so I can break it into pieces if you want. But first and foremost, how do you how do you get a political appointment? A really good question. I think um, we can talk a little bit about the life cycle and see if that doesn't wrap it up, because I do like the way you asked the question is sort of like beginning, middle and end right. uh, to get an appointment. Uh, it's largely getting your resume in front of the right people and having some personal connections or professional connections. For most people, it starts with volunteering on the campaign, you know, and write, helping to write the papers and uh, making the phone calls. And those folks get the first shot. And, you know, you get an email that says, hey, <clears throat> please apply, use this code. And so those folks kind of get sorted through. It doesn't mean there's not room for everybody else who maybe, you know, they're raising you're raising children or you're running a small business. Good God. My husband has a small business. There's no way you have any time to volunteer on on a campaign. But there is. But there are other ways. So you prepare your resume. You look for an area where you think that you can add some expertise. You look at the plum book, which you can find online, the plum book, just like it sounds P-L-U-M because of the color it was when it was in hard copy is actually wait for it. 
purple, and you go through there and you look at the jobs uh, that you think you're qualified for and keep a list because one day someone says, well, where would you like to land? Yeah. And it can't be anywhere where I can add value. <laughs> then you go to the bottom of the pile. <laughs> right. Right. But if you say, well, I've spent uh, my, my career around issues of energy, and I think I'd uh, really make a big difference in energy. New paragraph. DOD has its own energy department. New paragraph. Department of Education has this department, you know, has this office on energy. So you're, you've done your homework. You know what you're good at. You know where you can land and make some and add some value based on your experience, your expertise. And you really have to scan. And luckily, you have LinkedIn now, which you didn't have before. And really try to find those connective tissues, right? All right. I'm buddies with Lauren. Lauren knows so-and-so. Hey, Lauren, would you do an introduction to so-and-so for me? I'm looking for an appointment. And so, and you really have to stay at it. And it's like sales or buying real estate or being a small business. It's a numbers game. The more people who know you're looking, the better the chances of actually landing something. That's the easy part. <laughs> That's the easy part. No problem. Then comes the time for the interviews. And it is insanity. The record I know, because it's just such a vi- dynamic environment. And this, again, this is all Republican, Democrat, all administrations. People are just getting in. The, the, the demand signal is crazy. You're not sleeping and you've got positions to fill. You've got favors to fill in and people are calling you and hounding you. And you find yourself just trying to do the best you can to fill all these positions. This is the presidential personnel office. Right. The record uh, for interviews for the same job by the same person. Someone I know went for 42 interviews. No, excuse me. 24 interviews. For the same job, and she didn't get it. Oh. 24. 24 between calls and meetings and queries. So generally speaking, globally, this is how it works. The cabinet, and this is for both parties, the cabinet secretary is chosen. There are two kinds of appointees. There's the Senate-confirmed right. presidential appointee, also known as presidential appointee, Senate-confirmed, or PAS. There are two or three presidential appointees that are not Senate confirmed. And I can go into the detail if you want. But generally speaking, you have a cabinet secretary and then you have the rest of the presidential appointees who are going to need Senate confirmation. Then you have everybody else. And this is anything under an assistant secretary position, like a deputy assistant secretary, a senior advisor, a special assistant. And total, the two categories are about 4,000 people. So once the cabinet secretary is chosen, he or she gets one or two picks. So let's use the energy example. Rosemary Williams, you have been chosen as cabinet secretary of energy. I say, great. I have made my living in in my life. Not true, of course. My living in my life in sustainable energy. I can't wait to get in as secretary of the energy and push my agenda on sustainable energy. So the one person or two people I'm going to pick are going to be what? Either in that sustainable energy piece, or I'm going to pick a couple people I know in the energy business who are strong or I am weak. Right. Everybody else at that presidential appointment level is pretty much chosen by the president-elect team. Right. So they have a long list of folks that they must place because of their area of expertise and their experience. And so, but as a, as a cabinet secretary, that's kind of all you get. You get a little bit of influence, 
you know, of those two people you really like for chief of staff, I really need that person. Okay, so then once the cabinet secretary is picked, which have all pretty much been accounted for at this point, and there are some wonderful selections in, in, in this, uh, the next administration that's coming in, then comes the deputies, they're chosen. And there were some terrific deputies in the last administration and some really, really strong undersecretaries and assistant secretaries in the last administration. And I'm happy to happy to say that as a as an American first and as someone who is an Obama appointee second. And then from there, they get, you know, then the secretary, the secretarial appointments, there's a little bit more latitude, but not much in this first wave. And here's what I mean by the first wave right now. All the people that worked on the campaign, all the people, the hard chargers. They want to work in the administration and they'll get positions. And then right around December of this year, almost a year, the people who joined from the campaign who had never worked in government before start to fall off. Why? Because working for the government is hard. Working for the government is slow. And working for the government doesn't pay very well. <laughs> so they, they started to say, OK, this is not as much fun as campaigning. I'm out of here. Right. And also people. Some people get ahead of themselves and they find themselves in a pickle. They think it's a good idea to go on a government paid contractor paid golf trip. Bad idea. One took a helicopter ride in Marine One to go golfing in Northern Maryland. Bad idea. Things like that. So now you have what I call the second wave. And the second wave is rational, more rational, less mercurial. And the fever is down. Yeah. Um, And that's when I came in. So when I was called. Yeah, I told you about the first part. And then they said, we want you to go to VA. I go to VA and I interview with about six people. And after that, I was brought in another day and I interviewed with another two people. The chief of staff said to me, and he was a lovely, he was a high energy fella. He said, this is great. It was a Friday. This is great. I want you to start on Monday. I said, well, okay, I, uh, I can start on Monday. Great, 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 great. You start on Monday. <laughs> Three weeks later, <laughs> I called them and I said, hey, just wondering. And the woman on the phone, I'll never forget, she said, oh, my God, where have you been? I said, I'm sorry. She said, We've been looking all over for you. Huh? We need you. We need you. And I thought, exactly. <laughs> well, let's see. Now, you have my resume. You've got my contact information. The White House knows who I am. I've got a LinkedIn profile. I've got an open Facebook. I've got, you know, hilarious, right? And they were serious. Like, so I think, you know, maybe a tactical error instead of me you know, calling once a week and saying and not getting any answer. And then that third week getting that really hilarious answer. Maybe I should have showed up on Monday, right? Ham in the lobby and let them figure out, you know what I'm saying? So there's a time for acting on hyperbole. Right. Right. Um, and, yeah. and I was there for about a year and there was some, they're, they're, I got a call from the White House about a year into it, and they said, "Look, we are, we're having um, terrible time at OPM with the, the the weather system. You know, when to when to delay work and snow days, that kind of thing. Because it was right after Snowmageddon, and people were stranded for eight hours, and it was just horrible. And um, I have a reputation, right or wrong, I have a reputation of coming in and fixing things. I love following dumpster fires. It always makes me look, you know, smart and like I really know what I'm doing. So I said, I'll give it a shot." And it was a very difficult year. And I gave it exactly 365 days. And then I left and I went and I started, I did a little contracting with a small, and that was really educational for me. A couple ways, right? One, I understand the plight of the contractor a little bit. Like you got this great idea. How do you get it in? 
Yeah. I just need someone to hear me. Also, I got a good taste of the human condition, which means how people treated me as a contractor advice, how they treated me when I was an SES. Wow, that was eye-opening. Yes. And then I got a call to be considered for Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Military Families, uh, Military Community and Family Policy. And that's, you know, that's my dream job. And I said yes. And I got taken to lunch by a former DASD, as they're called. And she took me to lunch and she said, and she worked for Bush, Bush one. She said, every day is a knife fight for your budget. And I thought, how? I mean, really, I'm not some kind of rookie, right? I've been in Washington a long time. I called her three weeks into the job, three or four weeks into the job. And I said, Leslie, why did you sugarcoat it? <laughs> it was, it was eye-watering what people will do to get their hands on my, not my, but our $900 million. And, you know, they were fast talkers and they knew the system in the building. And I, I had been in the building before, but as a journalist, yeah, I had a hard pass to the Pentagon, like I did with the White House. And luckily I had some, I, my, you know, I, the, the, the front office team, not my number two, but my front office team, we're doing some amazing blocking and tackling. And the directors are superlative, yep. uh, the people who run those programs, yep. the top of their game. And so that went very well. I was very well protected by the White House because of joining forces, right. um, whose mission was about military families and veterans. And then about three years into it, I felt like I was, to coin a phrase, like I was mowing the lawn. You know, I'm wired for hand-to-hand combat. I'm wired for solving intractable problems. That's how I engage. And I was so happy with the work, but it really, not but, and it was just, it was in a good place. And that's around the time when Bob McDonald became secretary of VA. And everybody's, almost everybody's familiar with how Secretary Shinseki's term ended, which is completely unfair and awful, but it's Washington, right? Washington needs its own. Bob McDonald came in, a former CEO of Procter & Gamble, West Point graduate, and he was turning the agency on its ear, engineer by trade, but innovator, gentleman to the core, just like Secretary Shinseki, uh, and a brilliant mind from the private sector. And the things he was doing were dazzling and bold. And I thought, I, and the, there was one position at VA assistant secretary for the office of public and intergovernmental affairs. And they tend to put a political as assistant secretary who has political aspirations. And for those of your listeners who aren't familiar with public affairs, the very last person you want running public affairs is someone who likes to be in front of a camera. It is quite the opposite. And I honestly, I am never going to be a press secretary. I am never going to give a statement because I have no filter. So, But I can build a strategy like nobody's business. So I go in and I interview and I was selected and it was dazzling. It was awful. It was wonderful. It was the high highs and the low lows. And at every moment, Bob McDonald had my back. You know, and when he wasn't bold, I could be bold. When I didn't feel bold, he was bold. And Sloan Gibson, his deputy, was remarkable. And the chief of staff was remarkable. And the team, they assembled. And you had to be nice. You had to be nice. You had to be nice to everybody. Yeah. And uh, I got caught into an argument. I got caught having an argument with a leader of a veteran service organization who's bombastic. And he was picking on Bob. And I let him have it. And he sent my 
email to Bob McDonald <laughs> and I was so embarrassed. I said, Bob, this is not my usual demeanor. I just don't like bullies. And he said, no, I understand. And then he told the chief of staff later, it was it was shared with me. Oh, that Rosemary, she's short, but boy, she sure is a scrapper. <laughs> I thought, oh, thank God I got through that one. Uh, so I guess my point being, you know, you really are at the mercy of your leader, right? So when you have good leaders, it's no different than the private sector, right? You, you feel like you can do anything and you have to up your game. Right. Uh, and you have to, but as a political appointee, you, everything is fraught with risk. If you are going to change something, there is a, it's human nature. There's a whole group of people who don't like change. Yeah. And they're going to make it the government. hard for you. Right. Yeah. Particularly, I, yeah. Having, having run an organization myself, that no matter what you do, people don't like change. But in the government, the aversion to change is dramatically worse than it yeah. is in the, in the private sector. So, you know, it's, it's tough. It's, so, yeah, in Washington, in Washington doesn't help. And, yeah. and for your listeners, I will say that little known fact, 80 percent of the federal workforce is outside of Washington, D.C. Right. And I want to touch just briefly, you know, when you when you serve at a certain level, which is like 70 percent of the folks who serve in political appointments, you have a cooling off period yes. uh, when you leave. So when I left. I could not represent a third entity to my former agencies for two years. Yep. I could represent myself. I could go in and say, hey, hire me to solve this problem. Just me. Right. Oh, by the way, me. But I can't go in and say, oh, Humpty Frats Incorporated could really solve that problem. This is a federal law with teeth. It is. It absolutely uh, yeah. is. It is one of the only ones that is really. I think, strictly enforced across the board. And I, I, you see it. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say to the smalls that are, are listening, definitely seek out folks who worked in the government who are respected yeah. by the workforce. But just understand that two year rule. They can come in and tell you who's who in the zoo and here's your approach. And oh, don't try that. They've tried that before. But do not bring them with your meeting. Yeah. Do not have them make that phone call because you'll find yourself quickly in a pickle of not your uh, design. Yep. And I, you've got to be super careful about that. That is absolutely a, a critical thing to remember as a small business. Let's think about, you know, because we've, we've got listeners. First of all, we've got a lot of listeners who are small businesses and don't care at all about how you get a political appointment, certainly. <laughs> but we've got a lot of uh, I get a lot of calls uh, from a whole lot of people uh, and I don't know why they think I know, because I've never been anywhere near a political appointee. I've just staffed them a lot. But how do you manage that process? So we talked a little bit about how to manage the the political process of getting a, a, a schedule C, a, a political appointment for, in an administration. But there are all sorts of other opportunities to serve either in the government or adjacent to the government. So those who are not of the Biden persuasion, those who are not overwhelmingly thrilled that Biden got in um, and want to do some advocacy, want to do that, uh, that work, that, that work around the government, not in the Biden administration, how do they manage this? What do they do? Are they, are they kind of frozen out now that 
Um, and, you know, they just have to leave D.C. now that the Biden administration came in and particularly now that all three chambers, the the, the two uh, on the Hill and the administration are all, uh, at least for this term, in Democratic hands. What happens to Republicans? Do they have to go off to, you know, Nebraska or um, what do they do? What can they do? That's a really good question. So I will say that in Washington, at the macro level, there is a seismic shift where and it's and it's an editorial cartoon for somebody. Basically, everybody who is in the presidential appointee jobs packs up their stuff and they go over to the think tanks. Yep. Now all the people at the think tanks who are the color blue pack up their things and all go over to the PAS positions. So, you know, you and you're and you see it in the in the appointments. They're getting a little bit more creative in the appointments, both parties, so that, and I'll, I'll tell you what, briefly, my theory is for generations, the government, particularly DOD, was the innovator, right? And private industry looked to the government for the innovation. And over time, the government is increasingly looking to private industry for innovation. Yeah. So you can serve your country or your party in a variety of ways, whether it is a nonprofit that captures your heart, uh, because all leaders are led by their heart, frankly, good leaders, I should say. Right. So finding a nonprofit that answers the mail for your passion project, military families, veterans, sustainable energy, gun rights, even uh, hunting Concert, hunters are some of the best conservationists there are. Um, what else? Um, you don't name it, right? right? Forestry, education, mental health. And now talk about a target-rich environment for getting involved when the country is facing rampant unemployment and impoverishment and despair. Mm-hmm. Uh, pick something, jump on board, and that will lead, if you want it to, a- an environment that is politically charged. And I don't mean that disparagingly. Right. You know, politics is a good thing. It's a it's how stuff happens. Right. So it's really at that nonprofit level, the education level. It's uh, not just contributing. And then once you get involved, it's also thought leadership. Everybody has a unique point of view. Good news. Everybody can self-publish. It takes time. You want to be credible. Uh, You want to be on the Internet and you want to be able to um, contribute to the thoughtful dialogue, even if it's a little bit to the right or a little bit to the left. You want it to be thoughtful, data driven. Don't waste people's time with opinion unless you're going to back it up with research and data. Data don't lie. So rely heavily on that. And then outside the nonprofit space, there will always be events to attend. There will always be a way to expand your horizon through reading and contributing on sort of on the dialogue end of things. I will also say that there are a number of commissions that are uh, staffed by the White House, and it can be everything from the Board of Visitors to, you know, for the service academies. It can be a federal advisory council on Indian health, right. uh, prosthetics, um, women in the military, energy, sustainable energy, behavioral health, 
substance abuse, whatever affects the human condition in America, there is a commission for it or a federal advisory council. <laughs> and it's all Googleable, right? Not that that's a word, but you can Google it all and get a sense of it. And again, it's a matter of connective tissue to the organizations, you know, the six degrees of separation, lots of opportunity. Right, right. And and you can do a lot of those are non-political, they're semi-political, certainly, I don't want to say non-political, but, um, but they are looking for people across the aisle on a lot of those. So, yes. you know, I, I saw, for example, uh, an old friend of mine who was a, he was a career staffer with me at, at OMB, ended up switching over in the Obama administration to be a political appointee as the comptroller and then ended up moving over and actually was the IRS commissioner for a little while. But he left to go to, to industry and he was appointed in the Bush administration to the Defense Business Board. You know, so those kind of things, you don't have to be of the same party. And so there are opportunities, I think uh, it's important to kind of point out for someone in not of the administration's party or not in the majority on the Hill that still have opportunities. So it's it's not just getting engaged on your own side of the aisle, but but really being part of the government and the solution. And there's all sorts of places to get engaged, I think, is, is probably the bottom line of this. Ro, I think we could talk forever. I think we always do every time we do talk. <laughs> but I, I'm conscious of time. Um, this has been really uh, illuminating. I think uh, anyone who has any interest in engaging in the government at that political level, at the policy level for uh, for making change is going to be in, in, intrigued by this. So I really appreciate your your insights. And I really appreciate uh, your time, as always, um, for for helping people figure figure out their way. Uh, you certainly have done it for me in the last seven years. And, and I'm glad that, that we were able to give our listeners that opportunity to hear you as well. Uh, well, Lauren, I can't thank you enough for um, having me on. And I truly, truly believe that if your listeners are interested in how to create a mix of success with giving back, they need to look at you and what you've done uh, and what Donna has done. Um, just podcast alone. You don't have time to do this. You're doing this right in the word, you know, Franklin, not Franklin, Teddy Roosevelt said it's every man's obligation. I'm sure he meant women. It's every person's obligation to leave the industry they choose in better shape when they um, than when they found it. And and you live that you live that you give back, you show up, you sponsor the right things, you reach out and you're unabashed about it. And I think that people could really learn from your example. In many ways, you are the American success story. A hundred percent. I believe that. And uh, the success that you and Don experience is from grit, determination and smarts. And leading with your heart. And I can't say I can't thank you enough for that, for being such a wonderful example of, of, of that. I've got a tear going. <laughs> really, it means a lot. And and we do try to we do try to give back because so many people have given to us right. for so many years. Um, and I think it is really, really important to reach back and pull up people who are who are coming behind us. So um, I'm, I'm glad that you see that. I'm, I'm glad that that ma- that means something. It is really important to us. So, well, we appreciate the listeners and hopefully this was useful to all of you guys. Uh, And thank you very much. We'll see you next time.